As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, our salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you for the land of Jordan in Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why, did, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the, the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternity. Word of the Lord. So over the past three weeks, uh, Pastor Charlie Drew has been with us, leading us through a, a wonderful sermon series on the topic of prayer. And it's been a very encouraging series with lots of uh, practical thoughts and instructions for us. And personally, I've really benefited from this series a lot. And I want to conclude our mini-series on prayer uh, with this beautiful psalm we just read, Psalm 42, which really tells us about the heart of prayer. On one hand, we see that prayer is a universal practice. It's something that transcends culture, geography, language, and tradition. At some point in just about every person's lives, they pray. And there are many people who pray regularly, even people who don't believe in God. There are people who pray every day. And so prayer seems like it's intuitive. It's something that's woven into the fabric of our humanity. There's an impulse, this universal impulse, to reach out to God to the one who creates, the one who sustains, the one who cares and listens. But the question I have for us today as we look at this psalm is what makes for a, a deep, rich, and vibrant life of prayer? And that's the question. What makes for a deep, rich, and vibrant life of prayer? And I think that there's no better place to look than to look in the psalm that we just read, Psalm 42, because the answer is right there in verse 1, which begins, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water. So my soul pants after you, O God. And that's the heart of a thriving, flourishing prayer life. That's the attitude and motivation behind the heart of what prayer is all about. And so we see that prayer is not so much about getting things from God, although it's certainly an important aspect of prayer, right? Even in the Lord's Prayer, 
uh, we're, we're told to ask, give us this day our daily bread. So asking for things from God is certainly important, but it's so much more than that. It's about getting God himself. It's about knowing God personally, intimately, deeply. It's about finding joy and delight and nearness to God. It's about the presence of God, seeing the face of God, hearing the voice of God, knowing the very character of God. And so prayer at its very best is finding and experiencing all these things. And last week, Pastor Charlie did a good job pointing us in the right direction because he preached on the topic of adoration in prayer, adoration. And and he challenged us to spend just, just five minutes simply adoring God, not thanking God for anything, not asking God for anything, but five minutes simply adoring God. And if you're able to do that, you realize how hard it is to simply adore God. Because so often, we focus our attention on ourselves and the things that we want. So we struggle to turn our attention and our focus to God and simply to adore Him. And the day-to-day reality of our lives is that we often struggle to experience the presence of God in prayer for so many different reasons. We are distracted. We are anxious. We are pulled in so many directions. We face all kinds of challenging and discouraging circumstances, both internally and externally. We see in the psalm, there's so many things that are constantly pulling us in all kinds of directions. And especially as we reflect on the reality of the the pandemic over the past few years, it shows us how deeply we've been affected by our circumstances. For many of us, we're languishing. And I think that's the best word to describe, to best describe how we often feel. We're not flourishing and we're not depressed, but we're languishing, we're struggling. We're facing difficulties that are beyond us. And so when we ask, when you hit that question that we so often get, how are you doing? Probably one of the most honest answers that we could give is that we're languishing, we're struggling. And one of the many important takeaways from this psalm is that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be struggling. It's okay to be discouraged, to be depressed, to have doubts. And I think it's a, a helpful thing to create in our culture, in this community, where it's very much okay not to be okay. I mean, let's think about that for a second. What is the basic belief that binds all Christians together? It's the foundational belief that Christians are broken people in need of God's grace. We're a community of needy people. That's what most defines the Christian community. At its most basic level, that's what uh, binds us all together, is our, our neediness, our need for God to do what only God can do, to give us hope, healing, and joy, to take our brokenness and to give us wholeness, to make us whole. And we believe that's exactly what Jesus is all about. And if this, that describes you, then you're in the right place. This is the very best place to come as those in need, a community of broken people, a community of sinners in need of a savior. So it's absolutely okay not to be okay. And so we all go through seasons of spiritual dryness or spiritual depression as some have called it. And we see this vividly in Psalm 42. And so let's take a look at what this Psalm tells us about clinging to God for hope amidst seasons of intense darkness and suffering. And in the midst of all that, we see that it's the yearning for God's life-giving presence. It's the yearning for God's life-giving presence 
that drives us into a deep, rich, and vibrant life of prayer. So let's look at the reality of spiritual dryness, and then let's look at the keys to overcoming it. The reality of spiritual dryness, and then the keys to overcoming it. One of the metaphors that the psalm uses, that it begins with, for spiritual dryness, is the feeling of thirst. And we see that in the opening verses of this psalm. And you see that especially in verse 2, where the psalmist writes, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And so the psalmist compares his experience of depression with, with, a dried up, with this deer that's standing in a dried-up riverbed where there was once flowing streams of water. And so the deer pants as his tongue is swollen and hanging out of its mouth in the midst of a severe drought as he awaits for the rain and the water to return once again. And oftentimes when there's a drought like this, the water has been gone for days, if not weeks, which isn't uh, uncommon in the desert. And so the deer isn't simply thirsty. He's literally dying of thirst. He's running out of energy. He's running out of hope. And the only thing that he can imagine in the midst of his suffering is a flowing stream of cold water. And that alone is what will quench the pain and the longing that he experiences. And until he gets that water, that's all he can think about. And so the writer of Psalm is saying that in that same way, he is dying of spiritual thirst. That deep within him, he longs for God, for the presence of the living God. And he's running out of energy. And he's running out of hope. And so there's this deep longing within him that only God alone can satisfy. And in the midst of his spiritual depression, there's no indication whatsoever that he's lost his faith. In fact, it's very much the opposite. You see that in this psalm, he references the name of God no less than 14 times. And so he believes in the existence of God. But what he doesn't have is a sense of the reality of God as a living God. There's no personal sense that there's a God who's there, who's dealing with him, and who he's dealing with. It's all gone, disappeared. There's a sense of absence in his life, this emptiness where God once filled. And you see this in the series of questions that he asks. In verse 2, he says, when will I see God? When will I, literally in the Hebrew, it's when will I see the face of God? And then in verse 3, he says, where is God? And finally, in verse 9, he says, why have you forgotten me? And you see that these are not intellectual questions, right? These aren't, uh, aren't questions about the existence of God because deep down, he knows that God is there. That's not what he's struggling with. But he's lost this relational experience of God's presence, the sense that God is there, this experience of God, the, the taste of God. He no longer has any tangible experience of the reality of God in his life. And so he feels forgotten, lost, separated from the God of his life. And so there are times when we experience God, and that experience can be sweet and comforting, can produce joy. When we worship God, his word can touch our hearts. It can resonate deep within us. But then there are other times when that sense of the reality of God, the the tangibility of God, the experience of God, can dry up, that it can be lost. It's like that deer standing next to the water, that dried up riverbed. We can be panting for water, for that experience of God's reality. And the psalmist knows in his mind that God's steadfast love is with him. And he says so in verse 8. He says that in his heart, he he believes in God's unchanging love. And yet, in his heart, he feels God's absence, as if he's been forgotten. Literally, he's saying, I know you're there, God, but I've lost a sense of your presence in my life. And I feel thirst and emptiness 
and pain within me. It's like how we might lose touch with a, a close friend. And after that friend moves away, you have a loss of intimacy and personal connection. In that same way, God has become very distant, very absent. And now there's an emptiness that's once filled with the presence of God in his life. And in the midst of his suffering and depression, he doesn't know why God feels absent, why God isn't there. And one of the things that we see is that it's not because of sin. And there are other Psalms, like Psalm 51, that also describes the absence of God, but it's because of something that that person has done. And, and those Psalms are called penitential Psalms. Those are Psalms that connect the loss of God's presence with something, a transgression against God, which damages the relationship and it creates that distance from God, where it creates alienation and separation. And Psalm 51 is a great example of this. This is a Psalm where David the king prays to God asking for forgiveness for a sin that he committed against David and Bathsheba. And so here are the words of Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. He writes this. He writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, he's acknowledging that what he did, his transgressions against God, has caused the loss of God's presence. And so the way to restore that relationship is to confess the sin, to ask for God's mercy, and to ask for forgiveness. But that's not the case in Psalm 42. There's no at all reference to sin or anything that the person has done. And so we're not given a reason at all. And so when we experience a season of spiritual dryness and depression, sometimes it's because of some barrier between us and God. But there are other times when we just don't know why God feels distance. And so how do we overcome that? So that's the reality of, of spiritual dryness. What's the key to overcoming spiritual dryness? One of the things that is true about all the Psalms is that they show us what it looks like to hope in God in all seasons of life. Whether you're experiencing high highs or low lows, the Psalms cover every single range of emotion that one could experience. And this is true of this Psalm. We see that in the refrain of Psalm 42, in verse 5 and verse 11, it says the same words again and again. It says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Because to hope in God, to hope in God, is to neither be an optimist or a pessimist. Because notice how he writes that phrase. He's not writing as an optimist, or otherwise he would say that I praise God my God and my salvation. He would say, I praise God, but he doesn't write that. That's not true to how he's experiencing God at the present moment. He doesn't experience God. He doesn't praise God. And so he's not trying to be overly cheerful, to be more positive, more optimistic than he actually feels. So you don't need to be an optimist to hope in God. Hope is not optimism. But he's also not a pessimist, a pessimist or he'd write, I do not praise him, because that's exactly how he feels that even in the midst of all that's going on, he's not a pessimist. He hasn't lost all hope. Instead, he's a realist. He doesn't yet feel the joy of God's presence. And he's experiencing this intense darkness and pain that he writes all about throughout the Psalms. He's depressed. His tears are with him day and night, and he doesn't eat any food, right? So he's deeply depressed. And yet he writes, hope in God, hope in God, for I shall again praise him my hope and my salvation, right? So he doesn't yet praise God, 
but he's confident that the God who doesn't change will bring him back to, uh, to a state of praise. And he can tell himself that because of God's steadfast love, which never changes, right? He reminds himself that. He believes in that. We sung about that just now. And he tells, him, he tells himself this, even in the midst of his constant tears, day and night, because he believes that God is faithful, that God is true to his word. He knows that even this miserable emotion that he's feeling will certainly pass, that this season of darkness that he's going through will certainly pass. And so he's telling himself, don't be downcast, hope in God. And so that's what we want to be, neither optimists who are overly positive or cheerful and unrealistic, or pessimists who just have trouble believing in the future. So we don't have to deny our experiences of suffering and pretend that we are better than we are, but this psalm encourages us to go to God exactly with what we're feeling. Leslie Newbegin, a British theologian and missionary, said it so well in an interview he gave towards the end of his life. The interviewer asked him whether he was an optimist or a pessimist. And this is how Leslie Newbegin answered. He says, I am neither an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that was his answer. I'm neither an optimist or a pessimist. But he says he's a realist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so regardless of how he feels, the circumstances that he goes through, that's the reality upon which he rests his faith, his hope in something deeper than his own feelings. And so it means that we can be confident no matter how we feel that when we place our hope in Jesus Christ, we will never, never be disappointed. It means that God's grace for us is there even when we fail, that even when we come to a point of our deepest failure, God will not fail us. And so practically speaking, this means that we need to look to God through all seasons of life, even in the midst of God's absence. We need to cling to our spiritual disciplines. And this psalm is a model of how we do that, how we cling to God, how we cling to our spiritual disciplines, even when we don't feel it. If you could sum up Psalm 42 in just one phrase, it would be this. It'd be, I don't feel you, God, but I'm going to pray about how I don't feel you because I know your love for me has not changed, so I will hope in God. That's Psalm 42. It's a prayer about how the psalmist does not feel God and yet still prays to God and still hopes in God. Let me tell you a little bit of my own story to, and use it to illustrate the progression of prayer in my own life. Um, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and I didn't grow up in the Christian faith. And as far as I know, I'm the first Christian in all my generations that I know of. My parents grew up in, in Thailand, and like most Thai people, uh, they grew up with the practices of cultural Buddhism. Because for Thai people, uh, uh, Buddhist practices are deeply woven into every aspect of life. It's integrated to every aspect of Thai culture and Thai identity. So even as I grew up in the, in the U.S., my father taught me Buddhist prayers, which consisted of a series of Sanskrit prayers that you memorized and chanted. And so for me, this was my earliest uh, experience of the practice of prayer. It was saying out loud these words that I didn't understand again and again and again. And then later on, uh, my parents sent me to Catholic school for elementary school and high school. And while we as a family never got involved in the Catholic church, 
they thought that a religiously oriented school would be good for me, especially as a, a very rebellious kid who struggled a lot, who got in a lot of trouble. And so they thought it would be a, a good place for me to, to have an education. And through those years of catechism and religious education, my prayers shifted to the set prayers of the Catholic Church, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the many other prayers. And for example, uh, one of the um, paradigms of prayer in the Catholic Church is, is this idea of a rosary, which is a bead that has 59 uh, beads on it, and each bead represents a prayer. And so as you're praying these 59 consecutive prayers, you can, you can track where you are along the way. And an entire rosary would take quite some time to pray. And I'm pretty sure that I've never completed an entire rosary uh, when I was growing up. But there was a sense that if you could do this, it was meritorious. It was a really good deed, something that earned God's favor and blessing. If you could pray as far as you can through the rosary or even a portion of the rosary. And so that's perhaps the second step of my spiritual journey in prayer, is that prayer is a way of earning God's favor. It's a way of earning God's blessing. And a lot of my prayers at that point in my life were driven by a sense of guilt, that prayer is something I ought to do that I'm not doing enough of. But then in college, around sophomore year, uh, I unexpectedly walked into a small non-denominational church on one day. And I wasn't necessarily looking for God, but as I reflect back on that experience over 20 years ago, I think I was, I was very lonely and depressed. I was just looking to connect with other people. And even though I wasn't looking for God, I was so surprised as I began to hear and experience the grace of God in my own life. As I began to hear the gospel of grace, it was truly earth-shattering, truly paradigm-shifting for me. I discovered what I always suspected was true, which is that it's impossible to earn your way to God, that you can never love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and I can never love others as I loved myself. And so as I read the gospels and I listened to Jesus' words, I knew that I could never live up to the standard of his teaching, which seemed like perfection. And as I discovered more about his teachings, the most amazing thing about Jesus' teachings began to stand out to me, is that he wasn't calling his disciples to earn and work their way to the kingdom of God. Rather, he was telling us that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. That the way to God is simply through him. And I discovered that his teachings are all about grace through him. Grace through faith in Jesus. And that was the key that changed everything about the way I approach God in prayer. That prayer isn't about getting things from God. That through Jesus, he has already given us everything we need. But prayer is one of the means by which we receive the gifts that God has already promised to give us. And that was a paradigm shift for me. That all of God's promises, all of God's answers to prayer are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And as I read the scriptures and I began to see that the work of salvation is the work of God from the very beginning to the very end, that God accomplishes that work through Jesus so that those who receive in him have nothing left to do, that there's nothing left to do but to receive what Jesus has already done for us. Right? And so there's nothing that I could possibly do to make God love me more than he already does in Jesus Christ, including prayer. And there's nothing I could do to make God love me any less than he already does in Jesus Christ. And that was the most amazing thing. And that's what Psalm 42 hints at, but it says explicitly in verse 8, that God's steadfast love does not change. And it's all about grace. 
That's all about grace. And when I began to discover this truth, um, it, when it became real to my heart, when it became a reality in my life, it completely changed my life. It's as if the curtains were thrown open in a dark room that's there's a, on a sunny day, and the sunlight flooded into the room. So the, God, the, the joy of God flooded into my life. And I remember thinking that if this is true, if this is true, it's better than winning the lottery every single day for the rest of my life. Although the lottery wasn't as you know, high back then. But it, it showed me that the grace of God is more valuable, is more precious than anything else that money could ever buy. And that, when that became real in my life, it just, it just completely changed the way I thought of prayer. And I began to wonder my, to myself, how long will this feeling of joy last? How long will this joy stay with me? And so days went by, and then weeks went by, and then months went by, and now more than 20 years later, I have this deep sense of the joy of God continuing to pursue me. And this doesn't mean that there haven't been spirit, uh, seasons of deep spiritual depression, because all Christians experience that. But it means that even beneath those times of darkness and suffering, the hope of God, the peace of God, has not gone away. It's as if there's this welling up of the goodness of God from within me that changes the way that I can pray to him. And so our prayers are not merely driven by duty or a sense of obligation or a list of things we need, but there's from time to time in prayer that we can experience God's joy and delight in us, that he warms our heart, that he transforms our lives, and that he deepens our affections for the one whose steadfast love never changes, never changes. And you see all this grace all throughout the Gospels. And you see this in the short passage even that we read from John chapter 4, uh, the story about the Samaritan woman by the well, which Jesus asked for a cup of water. And even then, Jesus offers to her the gift of grace. And in this exchange, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then he adds this. He says that everyone who drinks from this water, and he's referring to the physical well that they're sitting next to, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so what's that water that Jesus offers to her? It's right there, the opening verses of Psalm 42. It's the same thing that the psalmist thirsts for because the water that Jesus offers the Samaritan woman is what the writer of the psalm is longing for. It's the gift of God, the ultimate satisfaction that we all long for. And so when he says, I am here to give you living water, he's talking about that which our souls long for more than anything else. He's saying that nothing else in all creation, nothing else in all creation can satisfy this thirst that you feel deep within, that you ultimately long for. You can try to find these things in all kinds of other sources, but there will be this thirst for more. Because in an ultimate sense, only God himself can satisfy what you and I most long for, that the depths of our soul, only God himself can satisfy that longing. And it's that famous quote from St. Augustine that said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
we see that everything in this world, everything else in this world that we can experience, love, beauty, and joy, these things are but a shadow, but God alone is the true substance. Everything else will leave us feeling thirsty, but God will not because he's the true source of all that is beautiful, good, and eternal. And the Holy Spirit is what's the key to experiencing God's presence. When you become a Christian, it's the Spirit of God that dwells in you. And that Spirit of God unites you with God. The Holy Spirit is God. And so the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and gives you new spiritual life. And so this psalm, like all the psalms, ultimately point to Jesus. When he was on the cross, he cried out, I thirst. It's because Jesus experienced the true separation from God in our place, that when we call out to him, we receive from him streams of living water. So great is his love for us. In uh, Psalm 32, 5, it says this, Though weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. But even though I might not feel it in the moment, I shall yet again praise him, my God and my salvation. And so what we discover is that joy, joy itself is not something that we pursue. But when you seek and find the love of God, joy is something that finds you. Right? Viktor Frankl wrote this. He said that happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. That true happiness is a byproduct of a deeper satisfaction, a deeper satisfaction, a deeper satisfaction that's found most fully in God. And so when we find God, joy finds us. And what the scriptures show us is that a, a child of God will ultimately receive a joy of such intensity, of such intensity, that no sorrow in this world can overwhelm it. And no sorrow in this world can overwhelm it. That doesn't mean that there's no sorrow in this world. It just means that the, the, the source of joy that comes from God will continue to persevere. And in the Christian life, sorrow is real. Sorrow is real. But it's a temporary condition. But joy, lasting joy, is not only possible, it's an inevitable result, the inescapable product of God's work of grace in your life. And the good news is that God keeps his word, that God finishes what he starts. So if he's began that work of grace in you, even in the smallest way, if God's begun that work of grace in you, then you can be certain that God will bring to full completion that work of grace on the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will, begin, will bring it to completion. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing gift of grace which we receive in your son Jesus Christ, the one who satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to know and experience this love to the very depths of our hearts in a way that brings healing and wholeness to every aspect of our lives so that we might live as salt and light in this world and bear witness to the joy and the new life that you give to us in Jesus. Help us to know, O oh Lord, your all-surpassing goodness, a goodness that no earthly pleasure can compare. Help us to know your goodness intimately and powerfully, that we might long for nothing else, that the joy and satisfaction that is found in you will be the satisfaction for our souls. Help us to be instruments of your grace, to bring healing and forgiveness to your hurting world. Increase our hunger and thirst for you. 
enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, our hope and our salvation, that we would find our deepest joy and deepest satisfaction in you. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Help us to know and experience your steadfast love for us each and every day so that we might be a people who show forth your goodness and grace to the watching world and to honor and glorify your name in all things. Amen.